0: I am just so grateful to have made that step and not being confined by fear because it would have been so much more easy to sit in my fear, to not taking the risk. And if I look at the last seven years, my life would have just been stagnating. So yeah, it was the best thing.
1: This is In Her
2: Element, a podcast from BCG. I'm Corinne Lines. And I'm Suchi Sridhivasan. Each episode, we have meaningful and vulnerable conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology.
1: this episode, we're speaking with Isabel Morrow, Director General of the Global Satellite Operators Association, or GSOA. Isabel's career in telecommunications has spanned over 20 years, but she actually started out working in European politics. She moved into the telecommunications space after a formative experience that she'll be sharing in this episode.
2: When we spoke to Isabel, she was at the end of an amazing seven-year journey as head of communications at the World Economic Forum, where she was committed to advancing global digital inclusion and transformation. Here's my conversation with Isabel.
0: So my name is Isabelle Moreau. I am currently working at the World Economic Forum as head of the uh, ICT industry policy. And yes, I am a French national who was, you know, born in France and uh, I left in my early 20s and lived pretty much in a few countries. So sort of a a nomad. (laughs) I love that. And so when the podcast goes out, once
1: this goes live, you'll have started your new role at the GSOA as the new director general. Congratulations. Can you please tell us what kind of work a uh, GSOA does and what you'll be doing there?
0: So the GSOI is the, is the global association of the that represents the satellite operators industry and, and provides a platform, if you want, for collaboration uh, between the satellite operators at a global and regional level and really speaks with one voice for all the sector. And so my job there will be director general. The idea is, of course, to, you know, Beyond the operations that you need to run as a DJ, uh, it's also really trying to amplify the mission of the GSOR and and help both industry and policymakers improve socioeconomic benefits uh, through continuously trying to bridge the digital, education, health, social and and gender divide uh, across diverse geographies that goes from the most developed countries to the least developed economies in the world. You know,
1: you didn't start out wanting to work in telecommunications and, you know, was there a pivotal experience that you had that made you take a deeper look into this sector? And if yes, can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: I always say, as you mentioned, you know, it's not that you wake up one morning when you're a six-year-old and and you tell people, oh, I want to work in telecoms or in communications, you know. Um, So it was not my little girl dream. You know, I I studied uh, European policies, politics. I knew that collaboration, international cooperation was something that I was very interested in. And uh, when I did an internship at the European Commission after my master's, and Brussels, you know, lived in Brussels, and there I think I landed into European policies um, and worked in an agency, APCO, which is a professional service firm specializing in public affairs and comms. And very quickly, my portfolio of clients became into the tech sector and communication, so broadcasters, cable companies, uh, and then finally I did a big campaign for the mobile uh, industry uh, in Europe. Uh, And that, I guess, led to my next job. I was approached by the GSM Association, which is, you know, the association that represents all the mobile leaders in the world, to lead the, create really a European group and, you know, open Brussels and, and lead there. So I think that definitely was the moment where it took me into that specific direction, as opposed to broadcasting, or I could have gone to work for a Disney or a Time Warner or others, you know, that were also in the sectors. But that is what defined that. Um, and I stayed there for 15 years. But um, it was not just tech. I, I never saw it as tech. For me, it was more public policy. It was advocacy. It was really, you know, promoting the impact of, of communications, telecommunications, on people and socioeconomic, you know, of of countries and and helping, you know, bridge the digital divide. That's the moment where, for me, I thought, okay, it's not necessarily the sector you thought you would land in, but there is definitely skills and areas that you can develop there that are really going to make a big impact. And so that was that. And I brought that to the the World Economic Forum. Uh, I think it was a natural path after a few years working specifically in that sector, I really wanted to work in an organization that enabled me to show the impact of that sector into all the other sectors of the industry as well. So, you know, with through IoT and over services, how could telecom really help digitalize all the other sectors of the economy?
1: Was it during that 15 years where you were in a village, would you say you were in Bangladesh and you had this like translator and you, can you talk to that? That experience is so like amazing. I think I had been
0: in the job at the GSMA for five years, uh, and we decided to go global. From Europe, and we, we, we started a public policy globally. And as part of my first, uh, one of my first trips in that global role, we went to Bangladesh where Telenor had an operation, and they took me to a village, and they had this program, which was they were giving a phone per village, so they, they were in many, many different villages, giving phones to women, and we're talking about 15 years ago. We didn't have tablets or smartphones yet. We are really talking of the little little phone that was flipping. Um, but women in the villages were using this as a business. So they were renting, if you want, their services for, for villagers to use the phone to make calls, but also SMSs at the time. So farmers, for instance, that's when they were able to start looking at crops on their phones, the prices of crops, um, where, you know, they could start checking uh, things. The internet was, was starting. It was very early days and it was done um, in a very precarious way but it was incredible to see how one woman in one village could help transform the lives of that village not only that but I remember speaking to one of the the women with the translator and she was telling us that she had been able to send her daughter to university with the financial uh, if you want revenues she made from that business and for me that was really a uh, it was very emotional to see that on the ground, because for us, we tend to forget in the Western world that, you know, our phones have made our life easier, right? We, now we can't conceive living without our phones. But it's not that it has revolutionized our life. We're already doing many things. We already had access to a bank. We had access to healthcare. In those places, the technology has really transformed their lives. And that I thought was an incredible moment for me to, to, to decide that I wanted to stay in that industry.
1: Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for sharing that experience. I can imagine how pivotal that would have been. What would you say to others who are thinking about making a career change, particularly those who
0: maybe they would like to work in tech, but they don't have a technical background? I don't think you need a tech background to work in tech because every tech company has many different departments. You can work in HR, you can work in policy, you can be a lawyer, you can be a strategist, you can be An economist, you can be anything to work in a tech company um, if if that's, you know, where you want to land. So my, yeah, my advice would be don't be shy of thinking that you need a tech background to work in the tech industry. Once you enter that door, there are so many opportunities because then you're in the midst of, of learning what you want to learn. And there are, you know, some of particularly the big companies are doing so many trainings. And so then you can really become a specialist, if you want, in AI or in uh, cybersecurity, and I, I don't know, in any of these opportunities. I think you need skills more than content knowledge. You can apply any skills to working into a tech company. So that would be my, my, that would be my advice.
1: Throughout your career, you've worked towards building a world where more women are involved in tech, sort of like the example you just shared, not just on the recruitment side that we're talking about. Could you explain some of the different
0: ways that women can be involved in tech? I think when we, t- we talk about women in tech, the first that comes to mind, if you want, is always... Women working in STEM, right, in science, technology, math, engineering, uh, and in large tech companies. And that is definitely something we need to promote and we need to get better at because numbers are still so low. You know, we did a report at the forum uh, last year um, and sectors with historically low representation of women are also the ones that are in the fast growing jobs of tomorrow. So if you look at cloud computing, for instance, women make up only 14% of the workforce, engineering 20%, data AI 32%. And it's, of course, more difficult for women to convert and to switch into these emerging roles than it is for men. So there is definitely a lot that needs to be done in in promoting the role of women in the tech and, and STEM sector. However, I think it is equally important to give Girls from a very young age a competitive advantage when they arrive in the working force. And so it's also equally important to make sure that girls are trained in schools, that they have developed their digital skills and that they become digital savvy so that they can later have access not only to these jobs in the tech industry, but to any job because the world is going digital. So if you are a medical assistant in a medical practice, well, guess what? You'll need to know how to use a computer. You'll need to be computer savvy. And you have to learn that from a very early stage. Same thing if you work in tourism, if you work in banking, in supply chain. So it is not just about working in technology for me, women in tech. Women in tech is providing women the skills, providing girls the skills so that they can work in any sector that they want. And then it's also, I think, providing... Uh, you know, digital skills and and providing access to digitalization everywhere and really making efforts onto that because you still have 3 billion people that are not connected in the world. And we know, again, from some of the data that we did, that, you know, men are 21% more likely to have access to the Internet than female at a global level. But that goes up to 52% in developing or, you know, least developed economies. So we really have so much work to be done there that is affordability so it's not about just giving access to you know to technology and telecoms and but it's also really connectivity, access to connectivity, affordability of connectivity and usability. To me, that's the definition of women in tech. I can't stop smiling because there's so many wonderful, amazing
1: things you just said that there's so much to unpack, but the usability testing piece, thank you so much for mentioning that. And also, I think women like me and like you and so many people in the sector who work in technology don't even know the statistics you just shared about cloud computing and how low it is and about AI and all of these things. So thank you for sharing those specific numbers for us to like Better educate ourselves about how few of us are really out there. I really appreciate you sharing that. That's wonderful. So you work with an organization called Women in Tech, which is maybe very related to everything you just shared. Can you tell us what kind of work that they do, and maybe share with our listeners how they, they could get more involved with that work?
0: So Women in Tech is is led by a wonderful uh, woman who's called uh, Yomi Moore, um, and she really created this with the the scope of of helping. Girls to get connected and, and, and have more access to tech. Um, so, I joined recently, I was asked to join recently the board of, of Women in Tech, and it's a nonprofit organization. And the mission really is to empower 5 million women and girls in tech by 2030. So, some will say, oh, well, you just mentioned 3 billion people are not connected, you know, like that is a drop in the ocean. It doesn't matter because it's a very concrete drop in the ocean. Um, Yaumi has got so much energy, you know, in, in driving that organization. We are chapters in six continents, so more than 200,000 members. And really the aim is to educate, equip and empower women and girls with the necessary skills, but also the confidence and the opportunities to succeed. So it's not just a networking opportunity, but it's also really there is mentoring and there is education, there is training. Um, And each country, as I say, has a chapter. So you have somebody who's responsible in that country uh, and drives forward this organization. And so in order to, to get involved, I mean the first thing is maybe to go and go and check on the on the web what, what women in tech does more in details. But it's also if in your country, this is a the sort of a cause that is close to your heart to, to have more women in tech and, and empower girls uh, through technology and in technology, if you are either in a country that you know you think you want to help do something, then just contact us. If there is already a chapter, you can get involved in that chapter. If there is no chapter, you can you know, you can develop one.
1: You've had amazing mentors in your time, and a lot of them have been men, which has actually been the case for me as well.
0: I, I had men and, and and female, but when I think of the two that have have really, you know, uh, sort of impacted my my career, it's probably they've empowered me to learn to develop different sets of skills. But in particular, I think because of the, the sort of the organizations I was working in, uh, they've given me exposure to senior level. Uh, of management in other companies. And that, I think, has been very invaluable. Because whether you are, you know, in a consultancy, in an organization, a trade association, as I was, your stakeholders are going to be industry leaders and, and, you know, quite at a senior level. So I think in my case, it was very um, important from the very beginning to be seen as evolving towards a path that was not just supporting my bosses, but being really part of that team and 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 being empowered, there are a couple of, of examples you know that I can give, which for me again were, were really crucial moments in time. Um, when I was at the GSMA, we did a, a very difficult, sensitive campaign around roaming uh, regulation of roaming, which was very sensitive for you know many political, economic reasons. Um, and we did one in uh, in the Middle East. We had a meeting with about 15 CEOs of the largest companies, you know, in, uh, in, in the Middle East, um, on site. And my boss came with me. And from the very onset, he knew I was going to be leading that campaign. We were just wheeling him out, right, to, to meet his peers. And it was a region that now has evolved a lot. You know, I'm talking about 10 years ago, 12, 15 years ago. It was still, you know, there were a lot of prejudices. And as a woman, it was quite difficult to make your sort of mark there. And my boss just, you know, introduced himself and it let me chair the meeting, And for me, that was incredible because it completely changed the dynamic. I was not the girl in the room taking the notes, sitting at the back or nearing him. I was sitting at the table with these guys, because it was only guys, and I had a voice. And, you know, that helped me for the next Two years where we had I had to work with them, not only with them, but I had to work with their teams, which was more challenging than working with them in a way. But so that meeting was really a semantic moment where it gave me the authority, it gave me the power to deal at that level and, and to drive this campaign successfully. So it's examples like this where I think, you know, it's very important. Same thing at the forum, you know, at the World Economic Forum, my first Davos, you know, where you sit in a room with all the, the CEOs of your industry. My boss didn't even come to the meeting. He let me drive the meeting. I think to me, the good mentor is a mentor that knows how to macro manage, if anything, it's a mentor that trusts you, that gives you space, and that is there to guide you but not to order you in what direction or another. And so I've been extremely lucky uh, and and you know, by all means, I also had like a, a female mentor when I was at the GSM Europe. She was the chair of the GSM Europe, who had been incredible in, in, in pushing me and guiding me and helping me. So very fortunate. But I think mentorship is is really crucial. And everybody in their career should take the time to find a mentor and to have, you know, those one on one sessions with mentors, because I think that is invaluable in, in helping you. Um, especially in helping us female, you know, um, evolving in our careers.
1: You started a whole new career and picked up your life and moved to the U.S. What encouraged you to take that leap?
0: Oh, gosh, Um, I was in my late 40s, so it was certainly not easy to leave everything behind. I'd been at the GSMA for 15 years. So, you know, leaving the security of that employment to come to the U.S., where as you know, you have no contract. You know it's at will. I was like, oh my god, it felt like jumping out of the, you know, 50th floor of a, of a building. But I felt it was time for me uh, to move on uh, professionally. I was also at an age where it's either you decide you stay for another 10 years and you're going to retire there, or you really decide. I needed new motivation. I needed to explore other things. New York came as the as the cherry on top of the cake. I knew I wanted to, to a new career, but I, I hadn't even thought of leaving London. I was in London at the time. And when I heard that New York was an opportunity, my heart just opened and exploded with excitement. And I knew it was something I had to do. The six fair months, I'm not going to lie, were hell. It was so difficult. It was really hard. Um, professionally, you know, settling in, in New York, you know, There were so many things I hadn't considered that, you know, all of a sudden were brought to the the forefront. Pretty much after five months, six months, things started falling into place. And it, it has been the most incredible experience, both professionally and personally, because I think it really gave me a kick in the, you know, my backside to make an effort again, even socially, you know, because in London, I'd been living in London for 15 years. All my friends were my friends. There was no need to make any effort, you know, like you knew exactly where you were going to have dinner on a Saturday night on, Sunday, on You know, I knew what to do. And when I arrived here, I had to reconstruct all of that. I had to find new friends. And for the last seven years, I've lived in New York as if I was leaving tomorrow. So I'm always doing things because I always thought, oh, well, maybe I won't be there. I am just so grateful to have made that step and not being confined by fear because it would have been so much more easy to sit in my fear, to not taking the risk. And if I look at the last seven years, my life would have just been stagnating. So, yeah, it was the best thing.
1: Can you tell us about a time when you felt that you were in your element?
0: When I travel, I definitely am in my element. When I discover new places, new cultures, new people, new food, you know. Um, but even in, in a professional way, new way of working, I've always felt in my element when I was sitting in a meeting in, uh, in Buenos Aires, uh, you know, because because the meeting was so different from a meeting you could have in London or in Dubai, you have to adapt to the culture. So I think for me, it's this international side, this traveling um, is when I'm in my element and, and that could be in any job and uh, any situation. Is there anything that you feel like I should have asked you that I didn't ask? Just one of my last points is maybe that as as female, as women, I think, and I've observed that over and over we definitely suffer the imposter syndrome much more than men. We definitely hold back on asking for promotions, for pay rises. We definitely hold back in making those leap steps like I did to come to New York because of family, because of, you know, children, partners, etc., aging parents. Um, I think we need to be bold. We need to be bold. Uh, I've given you the numbers. We desperately need female in the tech industry. We desperately need female to become CEOs of companies. You know, when I go to Davos, I sit in a room, it's 30 male and there is one female in the room. I think we need to be bold and we need to really continue breaking that ceiling and pushing for that as much as we can.
1: That was my conversation with Isabel Morrow. Sushi, what were some of your key takeaways from this conversation?
2: Yeah, you know, she just struck me as this amazingly gritty personality who derives energy actually from like you think about all of the different places and situations that she's traversed during her career and some of them you know those experiences of sort of moving to New York not when she was particularly young anymore and being able to accept those challenges I think is just that level of openness and resilience and then bringing it Uh, into her mainstream work too, right? I I thought it was a lovely story for her to highlight uh, being sort of in charge and in the driver's seat in the Middle East back in the day. What a lovely action by the male ally over here, her boss. I mean, I, I think that's very inspirational for others on the way that our male colleagues can contribute Um, very practically. I I thought that was an amazing story. Corinne, what stands out to you the most about the conversation? The aspect that sort of made the biggest impact on me was sort
1: of that um, lightning bolt moment that she says that she has. She's like in the middle of a Bangladeshi village and, um, you know, she realizes that giving someone a flip phone, which is all it was back then, to get them access to the internet to figure out, you know, what is the weather? What are the farmers going to need to prepare for I mean, just the the impact. And of course, as you said, she then definitely Dedicated her life to this because of that inspiration and that moment and that experience. So then say, okay, there's real value that's created from technology, even in this microcosm example. Like, let me be a part of that. So, yeah, it was beautiful. Her sharing and her experiences, really, really wonderful. Well, that's all for today.
2: This has been In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. Join us every episode to hear meaningful conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology. Thank you so much for listening.